Now and Again is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage, Keanu, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That is cageclub.me. Hi, we are back. Side B, probably. It's about here. Yeah, this is a uh, side B-ish, especially when you count all those terrific omits that uh, you always come up with. Absolutely, that's totally a side B situation. We are on Aaliyah. Aaliyah, oh my Aaliyah, oh, baby girl. Uh, this has to be the point where they're like mining the deep depths of that last album for singles. <sighs> well, okay. So this song is unusual. Aaliyah's um, first album was Age Ain't... See how I can always say this song and then I start six years earlier. Aaliyah's yes. first album was... After- the Nicopedia. The Nicopedia, everybody. It's it's a terrible nickname. Oh, because I kind of want to buy into it. You know what I mean? Sometimes you don't want to believe mm-hmm. your own hype, but then sometimes you're talking and... Uh, okay, this is going to actually be a little segue. So I got my mom to listen to the episodes I'm on with me if I'm there. Hi, mom. <laughs> right? Hey. I'm sure she'd say, hi, Chris. So um, we're listening to the, it was one of the ones with Lenny Kravitz. And my mom mm-hmm. said, oh, you know what? I was watching uh, one of the music channels on cable last night. Uh, it said that Lenny Kravitz had four consecutive Grammy nominations for blah, blah, blah. And it was the thing from the show. It was the thing from our show. Yeah, yeah. But like, it was just one of those things where it, it was a really cool crossover of content and her being like, I can relate to this now. She was like, wow, I can't believe you knew all this stuff about Lenny Kravitz, honey. And I was like, <laughs> maybe I can believe my own hype. But, uh, this I actually knew from earlier, from when I would just like crash like waves into Wikipedia for hours at a clip and never be able to get back, at, uh, get back out. I Care yeah. For You had originally been written for, um, her breakthrough record. Her first record had been with R. Kelly. It was, uh, but a number and it was kind of creepy because she was like 15 i think when she married him and you know he probably peed on her a little bit and like you just mm, yeah especially in retrospect it's a fact that you can't alter your interpretation of because of time you know what i mean yes uh i care for you had been written for one in a million you know you're the kind of uh you're the kind of wikipedia where you look up like some actor, like who was that actor? And then you just start clicking on random links and you're like, 45 minutes later, how did I start reading about the Nuremberg trials? And I'm like, how did I get here? Um, do you think that this song would work better in the context of the album? It's, it feels to me like it's like, you know, one of those track nine or track 10 on an album where it starts to bring it back down before the closer. And just like, it's not ever meant to be a single. It's just they need some more Aaliyah money. Um, yeah. When albums back in the day used to have like five and six singles, you could always tell what the, the label believed in and didn't believe in by that. I think that that's really reflected in Aaliyah's chronology. If you take a look, uh, probably at her videos more than accurately singles, because uh, I don't know how many of them got proper physical releases. Maybe a lot. Maybe I'm just dumb. She had five videos for um, One in a Million. As you went on, they were less mainstreamable. They were much more clearly, because uh, she had, you know, had popularity as an artist and MTV in rotation um, across the board, not just in the R&B charts. Did those also suffer from what you were mentioning with Shakira, like the third and fourth video uh, budget plunge, where it's just her in a warehouse somewhere? Uh, shockingly, the opposite. Early Aaliyah videos were very 
yeah, everything is lit by a trash can fire. <laughs> and it's all very atmospherically, yeah, like, like, like you're peeking in on Aaliyah's real life culture. The way she's able to, the way she was able to deliver her attitude while still gracing high notes was incredible. She kept that one eye covered, uh, and it always felt genuine. You never, right. you never felt like Aaliyah was putting on a performance. You, you, you thought Aaliyah was mm-hmm. giving you Aaliyah. I don't think time has uh, remembered Aaliyah well enough. I think that's disappointing. Um, I think she did contribute a lot. I, I think her death was talked about, um, but I, I think she got swept up by larger stories that would occur in music and stuff she was an oscar nominee and that needs to be remembered too not for acting but for uh the i guess we call it the adult pop contemporary version of journey to the past from the anastasia soundtrack yeah i mean if you've seen queen of the damned you know that it was not for acting uh that's an unfortunately true uh see this is the first Aaliyah song that I haven't really liked. Uh, I was not an Aaliyah person growing up. She's been one of the gems, like, things I've rediscovered in doing this. And this is the one that I was like, nah, this one is the first real step back. But I I don't think it's remotely her fault. It probably works in the context of an album. It was probably never meant to be a single. uh, And, you know, we're just hearing it like we heard those uh, Biggie and Tupac songs where uh, he was just on, like, two bars. And, like, they just pulled shit out of the, uh, the vaults to throw him on songs after they died. Every now and then I think about some of, like, the artists that are more prolific, you know, I think about my, my my precious Tori Amos, and I think about Prince. I think about the fact that these people were, were doing, like, seven albums in six years all the fucking time. How many songs is it that Carly Rae Jepsen wrote for Emotion? They claim that they had bits and pieces of, like, what, in the hundreds, right? You know, I, I can't believe we finally found a way to get her on this episode drink so many of those songs have such lyrical overlap and that's of the 20 something the 30 she chose to release i mean you can almost imagine it's from a musical there's so much conceptual overlap oh my god a jukebox musical based on emotion i think it'd be hot as hell and it would be set in the 80s and you know there's enough places where you could split the girls into two parts and there's enough things where you could add male vocals to it so I Care For You is ultimately a very forgettable Aaliyah song because it's meant to be buried somewhere on an album. That's why it was even moved from one album to another. It's actually meant for One in a Million, showed up as the last single on self-titled Aaliyah, and then was the name of her like like greatest hits popular songs package. There we go. Genuine with uh, another song that is not Pony. Uh, it's Stingy. to the start of the song but i think this is my favorite genuine song that has come up on now which again does not include pony but i was surprised how well put together this song was i actually just think it's kind of a forgettable song to be honest i mean that's fair it was a soundtrack song it was on the soundtrack to barbershop 2 so it may be a song that was not good enough for an album maybe if you know his deeper discography you could see that Uh, i don't i really liked how the chorus had like this almost iambic quality to it, um, where it was you know kind of going up and down. I liked how the the drums and the percussion moved with that. I thought that really was some interesting production and composition, um, especially since we haven't really gotten anything really interesting instrumentally from Genuine songs yet. They've just been you know competent, well-rounded R and B jams. I don't know. I, I this actually blends into. Um into other stuff for me. I think there's a, a ton of great R&B out at this time, and this just is not one of my favorites. Fair enough. Nora Jones, Don't Know Why. 
feel like this is going to be one of those ones where, for me personally, a song is so good that it's tough for me to explain why it's so good. Uh, I call this, this genre, kind of this, this tone of songs, whiskey songs. It's like they're best with just like the nighttime and a glass of something smoky. Set the stage. Hey everybody, welcome back to 2002. It's still me, Nico, but here's where I'm at in my life. I am madly psychotically out of control, head over heels, brain blowing out of both sides of my head, obsessively in love with a guy who lived like 45 minutes away. We uh, talked a lot on the phone. Um, yeah, at 16, that's basically a long distance relationship. Yeah, it's like marriage. It was, it was, it was, it was sorted, but you didn't understand. It's not that it's like weird and it's, it's, we're going to wind up together and everybody sees it and everybody knows. And it's just, it was okay. Right. It, uh, one of those situations. And yep. This album for me. <laughs> I played this. You wore it out. I played this album on repeat. Like I was a high school librarian reading Joy Luck Club wistfully. <laughs> oh my God. And all I wanted to do was play Mahjong. And, uh, wow. Okay. That is not for that reason. <laughs> I mean, because <laughs> old people play Mahjong a lot. <laughs> in my head the librarian is blonde i swear i'm so uncomfortable right now so um i think this album is very associated with like i read eat pray love a couple of times a year you know what i mean <laughs> yeah it's sure. it's very Nora Ephron movies soothe me it's got a very starbucks feel to it for sure oh totally I think we've heard examples of artists who, like, Starbucks turned into that sound. I, I don't think it goes the opposite way. Like, in a chicken-egg situation, I think Starbucks adapted to this aesthetic more than people started writing for the coffee shop. I I actually... Uh, I should say the, like, the corporate coffee shop, not, like, your local college coffee shop, because we're always going to find that girl with the acoustic guitar playing an Ani DeFranco cover. Oh, I was going to say she writes originals about political injustice, even though she's actually white and, and upper middle class, uh, probably like upper class. If you want Definitely to has dreadlocks. She actually cut them off recently in an act of solidarity for people who lose their hair to cancer. Not that she knows anybody personally. She actually just felt like cutting off her dreadlocks, but she likes telling people and getting in on a movement, even though that's horrifying and insensitive. I'll uh, see the one I know cut it off three sentences into the medium think piece about how it's cultural appropriation. Oh, yeah. The one I'm thinking of in particular would literally have never different girl. Yeah. Ever read a think piece on cultural appropriation. Uh, so, uh, don't know why. Great song. Perfect song almost. It's a good song and it's very. It, it shows off the, the depth of Nora Jones' knowledge of, of older sounding music, I guess. Mm. She really, she captures something like Gershwin almost. It's, it's, it, it's transcendent. It really is. It, it takes you away. You're immediately in a bungalow overlooking the beach and your, 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 your giant glass like panel window doors are wide open. And the breeze is blowing your curtains toward you. And maybe I'm just thinking of the video, but it's... You are, actually. Very <laughs> beachy. She's just up on a beach. Okay. Okay, walking so... Walking around. <laughs> it's like an outdoor version of the Lisa Loeb's Day video. She's just all walking at oh. a camera. 
Yeah. Okay. So, um, what was up with um, mainstream radio's deal with? And I think you might be more capable of answering this since you have the Tori Amos knowledge. And that what I'm going to mention is kind of you can draw a line back to that. What's up with the radio's love of like weepy women with pianos right now? Not right now. 2002. We you touched on something really great last episode that I think I can expand on a little bit further. That the Beatles were when uh, the Beatles were when rock and roll was still for women and girls. Oh no, we never talked about that on the air. We talked about that in in, uh, in the green room about oh shit that 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 stink piece. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll link that. There's someone wrote a, a terrible stink piece about how uh, pet sounds and um, what was it, Sergeant Pepper? Yeah, both like made music, made pop music belong to men now, and it's just fucking terrible. Yeah, I think if you kind of look at women in music, it, you do have. Like you have Laura, I mean, you know, you have like Laura Nairo, and you know, you have Joni Mitchell, and then you know, you have, you have Joan Armitrading, Carly Simon, Carol King, and they're all really phenomenal. They're all really talented, amazing songwriters who can also play their own instruments. But none mm-hmm. of them like rock. You know what I mean? None of them sound like right. Billy Corgan in the back of their throats for some reason. Um, well, except apparently Vanessa Carlton, as we've heard on the Paint It Black cover. So then in the eighties, uh, women. Women can rock, like Pat Benatar is a, f- Pat Benatar is a motherfucker. She's amazing. Um, and, and Patty, and Patty Smith mm-hmm. and, um, Patty Smythe, I also, I guess. Joan Jett kind of carries over from the late seventies. Late seventies, right, 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 right. I didn't mean to, you know, I'm a little bit out of order on my timeline here, but, um, by the time you got to the, the nineties and music wasn't allowed to be fun unless it was exclusively meant to be consumed with club drugs. After all that was done and like the dust settled and it was 1994 and I, I do think a major turning point is Lisa Loeb's stay. All of a sudden it was super cool to have a lot of feelings and to be a woman. Mm. And you know, you'd had, you'd had, uh, Kate Bush doing it all along. But, yeah. You know, not really receiving mainstream accolade, not really see- receiving the, the kind of attention for it that she deserved. Um, <clears throat> you had Alanis breakthrough in 96. And I think we were seeing a really genuine evolution of women in music being able to do things differently than men. I would call yeah. Alanis probably the most major turning point of, like, the late era for that. That has to be, right? Uh, but I think Alanis was made possible by other women going further, so that Alanis was... So- well, oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, I think Alanis... Okay, right. You know what? I can't disagree with you because what I was going to dis- – I disagree with her being responsible for it, which isn't what you were saying, but it's what I was hearing. I don't disagree with her being responsible for that turning point. Wait, no, I do disagree with her being responsible for it, but I don't disagree that she is like the linchpin. I think she was incredible, unforgettable, breathtaking, tremendous record at the right time. But I think there's a lot of breathtaking, tremendous, incredible, are you kidding me records that just kind of go unnoticed by mainstream radio. Okay, so I'm supposed to be talking about how weepy women with pianos got here. Because we watched women transform through the years, they reached a point where it was like kind of okay for women to exist in a way that men didn't. I can only think of like one super emotive piano guy that was successful on the radio, and that was... Ben Folds, but even then, Ben Folds is more known for being Ben Folds than for any particular piece of music. Rufus Wainwright had a quick second there. With his cover of Hallelujah. But what we're about to see happen is sensitive men emerge from sensitive women, and we see the rise of the John Mayers, and we see Mm. Howie Day, and that's all just around the corner. 
And then yeah. when that happens, the Jason Mrazes bring in Colby Calais and Starbucksy music and super chill, laid back, sleepy pants. It's really interesting because I do think that this record by Nora Jones is sort of the birthplace of, uh, I, I don't know what else to call it, latte gaze? Yeah, I think that's it. Oh man, hashtag latte gaze, spread that. It's really good. She div- she created it here. And don't get me wrong. She's definitely hearkening back to half of the women we just mentioned. But this is the first time she, that somebody was kind of like, hey, are you a woman? Do you like red wine with your girlfriends? Do you have nothing to do on Wednesdays? Mm-hmm. This is the album for you. I also think that the the critical turning points, because if we're talk- looking at linchpins here and we're going to say Alanis and, and Nora Jones years later, both of those found both critical – and commercial success, um, winning, you know, a lot of um, uh, Grammys. As did Alicia Keys with, holy shit. Now, you know what? Now that you mention it, how many women with, how many women instrumentalists is this who are capable of balladeering? And I'm saying it that way so that I can include Alicia Mm -hmm. Keys, Shakira, Vanessa Carlton, roughly the Dixie Chicks, Nora Jones, Hey, look, it's sort of the birthplace of John Mayer. It's We've got Coldplay, who's been around for yeah. a while. We've, like, found the missing link, I feel like. Yeah, I think women being told they're allowed to have thoughts and not just big old tits. Because here's the thing. Without getting super preachy on equality, one of the things that I really have to stress is by, by women being able to express themselves in new ways and change the medium. The medium was influenced and grew. That allowed men to have new ideas they'd never had before because they had never had that information you know what i'm saying there is something really amazing about the fact that these women all express themselves in a very different way from the way the men at the time did i saw liz fair on tour i saw her open for jason mraz and considering she did play almost nothing but the album with extraordinary and why can't i it made sense uh but when she played anything from white chocolate space egg or exile in guyville or whiplash 80 percent of the audience talked over it and it, it was uh, – and how can you talk over a single second of Exile in Guyville? It was the first time I ever heard a woman use the C word. We uh, we recorded episode f- uh, volume 15 pretty far in advance, and that's Why Can't I? And I talk a lot about this exact topic. Well, I mean, I'm glad we got the time to talk about some sensitive, soulful uh, female singers because now it's time for Fart Rock! Dads, dads, drive mini Vans, they drive mini vans, they are dads. Uh, fucking Nickelback and other guy, Hero from the Spider Man soundtrack. Josie Scott. Yeah, is he someone? Is he from one of the, um, saliva or seether or stained or, uh, separated, but it's spelled with a D? Um, Stain is Aaron Lewis. Uh, Disturbed is David Drainman. I think it's Josie Scott of 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 cold or saliva. Sure, he looks like a mutant. It's like that time you said it's not Rachel Trash's fault. <laughs> she looks like an alien. <laughs> uh, I mean, well, Chad Kroger looks like a Muppet. Of course, his name is fucking Chad. Like he's the chattiest Chad. You know what? Hey, one of my best friends is named Chad, and he's, like, super cool, so I have to fight. Thoughts and prayers, Chad. <laughs> hey, no. Chad Kroger does seem kind of like the bad side of Chad. Like, my name is Nico, but, like, 
in the same way that I'm sure somebody goes by Topher for Christopher, um, I, uh, like I, the the guy from Spider Man Three. Yeah, I have there to assume go. that somebody goes by Halas. <laughs> for ni- and no, no one does that. <laughs> you sure nobody goes by Halas? Yeah, that's not a thing. So yeah, there's a good there's a good part of a name and a bad part of a name. And I, Chad Kroger, uh, you know, I have to be honest though. I actually there was this article I found online one time that was like, why does everyone hate Nickelback? And it was like, no, for real. <laughs> why does everyone hate them so much? Um, because they're not good. And it is a it is a lot. It is a lot of hate directed their way. Yeah, and then here's what gets funnier. There was a they're just your generic like bad bar band that got famous. Like they're not worthy of all that kind of hate. Um, I think Creed probably takes the right amount, and that's still probably less than Nickelback. Don't get me wrong, Nickelback is bad. I actually just don't know when we all decided we hate Nickelback. Um, I agree. I think it was when people heard their first song. No, no, that's what I'm trying to say. They were like, or maybe when they heard their second song, that was the exact same as the first song. I will say maybe that it was that that you could like. There's a there's a there's a YouTube video of their first two songs, uh, you know, smashed up, uh, and how they're they're the same fucking song. You know, I think they might get some hate because they don't seem to have much of a sense of humor about themselves. They really weren't happy when their Florida concert sold so poorly that uh, they gave away two tickets with every large pie at local pizzerias to help oh fill the arena. Yeah, it was like 2014. And, That's pretty incredible. And to fill the arena, they had to like uh, give away two tickets with large pies. And uh, it, That's like some carny wrestling promotion shit from the 70s right there. It made the news because more people turned down the tickets. <sighs> Uh, well, they just white knighted the Chainsmokers because someone called the Chainsmokers the Nickelback of EDM. That's that's I actually I, if you have you ever have you ever have you ever have you ever read an interview with those guys? The the Chainsmokers? Yeah. No, because I don't know who they are. Because you could tell me that any two white dudes in V-necks in the middle of Brooklyn were the Chainsmokers, and I'd go, yeah, okay, I, I believe you. Oh my god, I was reading a Cracked article, and they, they admit that they only ever started making music because it was easy and it got them chicks, and between the two of them, they have a combined 17.83 inches of cock. Oh and, yeah, fuck you. Oh my god, they're horrible, and they're like, artistry is garbage, we just make what sounds good, whatever, we don't even know what, how to make music, haha, ha, but you buy into it because you're stupid. I can't wait till they're playing state fairs with Nickelback. You have to edit this out, but I was going to be like, please, you think they're going to make it to that stage? Two eight balls and they're out. <laughs> I'm not editing that. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, for real. Then fine, I'm going to own it. For real. Two eight balls and they're out. I, I, I don't know. The song was nominated for a Grammy. Fuck the Grammys. Uh, Hoobastank, Running Away. end of this album is so bad the other day we couldn't think of another hoobasank song the last time we could not no i did right no we got there but like we struggled i came up with this song yeah but we struggled at first i also think this was a turning point for hoobasank um as artists and i know that sounds really stupid 
No, no, I, I had a note there, too, that this is not the same Hoobastank that does The Reason. This is a band that was signed because someone wanted a low-rent Incubus. Yes, and that was what I was going to say. Um, their music before this was a little bit harder, and you can still hear the trace elements of hard in this, but you can only call this hard if you're also, like, if you also say stupid sentences like, man, that Chris Daughtry really rocks the house. They did Crawling in the Dark before this as the first single, right? Yeah, absolutely. Ugh, that song is not good, but it's probably a little bit. <gasps> oh no, I actually think that's this. a really fun song. Um, I it has a sound that is not just some other bands kind of like it sounds like a Hoobastank song, not a. I mean, this is an Incubus song. I <laughs> yes, it, well, it's it's actually Incubus by way of Michelle Branch. One of the things we commented on about Incubus was that they actually are incredibly competent musicians. One of the things we've commented on is while we love so much Michelle's branch's work at this point in her career, it's a little bit juvenile. Um, <laughs> this is juvenile Incubus. Oh, the lyrics are so offensive. Is it me? Is it you? Nothing that I can do. It's like, it's, it's even the whining. I feel like bad lyrics can have its own tournament off of this album alone. Yeah. When uh, I was doing the research and watching this video again, uh, I paused it in the middle to watch the new Kesha video. Uh, it was a good choice. I actually love Woman. Uh, when I turned it on, I was nervous for 10 seconds. Uh... Nico, Nico, come on. You don't love women. I madly love Kesha. And uh, I just, you know, it's – I have just been so worried for her because she just did the most personal private battle of her life on the world stage. And she didn't just do it to do it. She did it so other women would feel like they could. And I think the most beautiful moment I can think – like not the most beautiful moment. No, that you know, like I, it, this wasn't the sun coming up or something. But like um, Lady Gaga who, who was like, no, I'm going to physically be there with you and like showed her solidarity and shit. Like that was really beautiful. Kesha's essay on RollingStone.com about why this song is an anthem for anybody who feels low regardless of gender to share in the power of being a motherfucker was really powerful. Oh, I will link that in the notes. I have not read that myself yet. Oh, it's super great. Uh, her whole thing is that this song is not for women. This song is about how she feels power from being a woman and loves to celebrate it. But this song is for anybody who ever feels low or scared and, and needs to put on something to pump themselves up. This this song is for you too, men. This song is for anyone who needs power. Uh, Hoobastank. No, fuck them. No, um, hold on. I, I, have, I have one more thing to say about this, though. That their band's name is the worst band name to say out loud ever? You know, I kind of – I think the laziest thing in the world is when you name your band after something you know – already exists like i i have a personal emotional uh, objection to the devil wears prada and drowning pool mm. you know those are already things Atreyu. Fuck, the fuck off this is the point at which hoobastank started nudging itself toward plj plj being the adult yeah. contemporary version of of top 40 um and then z100 all of this of the 80s 90s and today it, this was their move toward plj this was where like the dad who had been like, yeah, you know, man, I love it when that song comes on when I'm driving you and your buddies to soccer. The husband of the mom who can't hear a black guy on the radio. Yeah, yeah, it's the, it's the parallel. So then this song comes on and he's like, oh, yeah, honey, if uh, if if Jake wants to go see Hoobastank, we should let him and I'll, I'll chaperone here. This is what they sound like. They're, <laughs> they're totally fine. And they play Running Away and she's like, it's still a little hard for my taste, but it's not bad. And then... A couple of months 
I appreciate that there's an acoustic guitar in there. <laughs> I love that she's got her friend over for drinks because uh, they're listening to Nora Jones because yeah. it's a Wednesday. They're sipping uh, from like large sloppy martini glasses. <laughs> so then this song starts coming. So then the reason starts coming on um, on on PLJ and. It, the song comes on on the radio, and it's a really hard time in their marriage, you know, for Jake's parents. And Jake's about to go away to school, and that's making it really complicated because at least they've always had Jake to focus on, right? And now the reason comes on the radio. Well, ever ever since Hunter got caught dealing Adderall. Ever since Hunter got caught dealing Adderall, and that's you know, it's 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 just been one thing after another with him ever since that. And they're both in the car, and. One day they're just driving in the minivan and this, and the reason starts and it starts with, I'm not a perfect person. And he just gives her a look while he's driving and goes back to driving with his <laughs> flipping forward. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the song. The reason is the song is, is a trailer song. It's not a real piece of, it's, it's a real piece of music. I should never say anything like that. That is such a disgusting, unfair, elitist thing to say. It is absolutely a real piece of music. It is not a piece of music I personally take very seriously. I think it is over emotional. I think it is sappy. And I think that this is the turning point for them as a band because I don't think there is a straight line that draws from crawling in the dark to that that the Eagles didn't take 30 years to do and they did it in two albums. Yeah. Um, I'm really sorry about that. Speaking of moms and minivans. No, 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 that's all saying. Uh, speaking of moms and minivans, Coldplay, In My Place. Okay, so yeah, they're like a kind of mommy arena rock band. Uh, I still kind of have a soft spot for Coldplay and think this is one of their better songs. I I think A Rush of Blood to the Head is a record that can uh, can reduce me to tears uh, like 10, 10 different places. I think A Rush of Blood to the Head is one of the most perfect pieces of music I've ever heard in my life. Uh, and this is one of the emotional climaxes for me. Because one of the things that Coldplay does the best is they write these incredible stories stories in their music. Chris Martin has yeah. this unbelievably emotive voice. And when you hear this song on the radio, there's an emotional power to it. And it's dynamic, especially when he starts the 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 the, the pleading at the end. The please. I've heard people get really mad over the comparison between Coldplay and Radiohead, but I don't think it's an unfair comparison. I don't either. I think they are I think they are the okay, and this is what I do get. There's a show okay. called called uh Supernatural, if you've heard of it. And I, uh-huh. I watched a few seasons of it and said, I deserve better and stopped watching. But the thing about Supernatural that's very interesting is they kind of openly admit that it's based on a lot of other much more recent pieces of fiction. And, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things they flat out admit to is that their character Castile is purposely John Constantine. Mm. There's, it's, it's like literally he wears the trench coat and the suit and the tie with it open and is a little messy and he is intentionally visually John Constantine. They are very open about this. Just like they're very open about how half the plot of the book is, um, half the plot of the show is the book American Gods. So when you're at Comic Con and you go up to somebody and you're like, hey, cool John Constantine. And they're like, it's actually a Castile. I just want to be like, oh, I'm sorry. And if they're like, yeah, man, you ugh, obviously I'm not John Constantine. And I just want to be like, I'm sorry. I thought you were the authentic thing, not the open ripoff. You know what I mean? Shout outs to uh, Jeremy Greer, who has a supernatural podcast called Monster of the Week and is the only person who understands where this metaphor is going right now. 
Well, it's it's sort of the way I'm like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. You're offended that I mistook your Castile Im- cosplay for a John Constantine cosplay? I'm sorry I thought you were the thing that came first and, and is more genuine. I'm sure that's how Coldplay Radiohead fans feel. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Pulled back that arrow and shot. <laughs> <laughs> they They probably are like, okay – we love a band that is genuine and passionate about art. And like, I, I feel like, I feel like you need to like guest splice Joey in here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's filling his dipe right now about being called a Coldplay fan. Um, I think this is a great piece of music. I think when you sandwich it between the two incredibly dynamic Radiohead esque pieces of music that it's between on the album becomes an even more powerful piece. Um, I think it is a piece that was used really genuinely and really honestly in a lot of different media. It was used on TV and in movies and it's, uh, a great, a great song for that. Well, it's it's interesting. Like there was a point where you could always tell what a Coldplay song was when you heard like the opening couple of bars from it. Right until Fixie was included in that. Like, but right until around when they started getting weird with like that Violet Hill. I think Speed of Sound sounds almost exactly like Clocks. I think Radiohead is Coldplay for people who took more than one year of philosophy in college. This is your last chance um, to bail on the podcast until emissions, where I'm just not, where I'm not just making guttural noises with my mouth. Um, Creed, in one last breath. The most irritating voice, like. And that's not his singing voice, and I probably have brought this story up before, but there was like a, when Behind the Music Returns, a VH1 special where, I watched a lot of VH1 if you watch the show, evidently, where he was like, yeah, it wasn't, Scott Stapp was like, yeah, it wasn't until our, our breakthrough with, um, when I wrote, uh, My Own Prison, where I showed the lyrics to everybody, and they were like, you're a really powerful songwriter, these, these are really intense lyrics, man. And I'm sort of like, I think that's why it became easy to hate Creed. And it maybe even helps me understand the Nickelback hate a little bit now that we're talking it out. I think Creed hate... I mean, Scott Stapp is a guy with no self-awareness or sense Scott of humor. Scott Stapp one time lost a sex tape featuring himself and a woman and Kid Rock and another woman in the same hotel room separately banging, no sword crossing. Um, he one time lost a camera that had footage of this... And Kid Rock was very mad at him. Oh, man. Do you think that tape... Is that tape out there? I do not know the follow-up to this story, uh, because... Well, because Kid Rock says he's going to run for Senate, so, like, you know, I've really been wanting the piss tape my whole life, um, but, man, I'll take the Kid Rock sex tape if it shuts down a terrible politician. I, I also hope that it includes something that is incredibly hard to get out like to get out from under like i would love it if when he comes he shouts like sweet home alabama or something promise that when we have to do that fucking sweet home alabama werewolves of london mashup that he has uh i'm just gonna fart into the microphone (laughs) and you know here's the thing here's the thing A a bunch of actors from the tv show teen wolf just had their sex tapes leaked and um all of these gentlemen are of the larger end of the spectrum (laughs) and uh for that sake, their careers have not been hurt at all. If anything, their Google searches have gone way the fuck up. If Kid Rock had a sex tape out there of any consequence, 
and somebody could make money off of it, just like somebody tried making it off of three 25-year-old men on a TV show you've never heard of. They would have sold it by now, so I unfortunately can't imagine there's anything damning enough on it, because if Mm. you can make money on something like that, it does seem like more often than not, your goodness goes out the window. And if you are the kind of person who deals in stolen cameras with celebrity sex tapes on them, I am uh, disinclined to believe you have a tremendous sense of morality that you're looking to impart on the world. Yeah. Yeah, if somebody's going to sell a couple of 20-somethings you've never heard of dicks to TMZ, they're going to sell Kid Rock's sex tape if there's anything remotely interesting in it. As I just said, Kid Rock and Scott Stapp are in it, so there is nothing remotely interesting in it. Yeah. Is it just me, or is this chorus extremely stupid? I, I know the answer is yes, but does it make sense? Hold me now, I'm six feet from the edge, and I'm thinking, maybe, or six feet ain't so far down. Does that make sense? Am I just missing, like, the through line of, of that being a thought? Everybody said, like, wow, they were such powerful lyrics, man. You're feeling really complicated things. I mean, I'm sure Scott Stapp's friends have been telling him that for years. That's probably partially how he got his Jesus complex. I think it's his really thick neck. I think I think there's something that happens, and people just... Well, when you sing with your lower jaw, your your neck gets very thick. Yeah. So it's, it's a very... Considering you're such a workout guy, I'm shocked you didn't know that. Um, you know what? Every day is every day is chin day, bro. <laughs> I also appreciate Scott Stapp's inability to button the last three buttons on his button down, but all of the other ones, so that when the air machine turns on, you get peaks of his abs. Right. Repeatedly, forever in this video. Yeah, he he wants to show off his use of CrossFit with shirts wide open. Now my shirt needs to be changed. It, it's beautiful. Uh, fuck this. Uh, Our Lady Peace somewhere out there. song was until the chorus and then i think i heard it on like a wb show once maybe so i have friends into as weird things as i'm into and one of my favorite people in the whole world who magically came up last episode heather uh super into our lady peace and she got me into them and i actually really dig their music i think this is one of those cases of where the label was like Find me the single that sounds the least like every other song they've ah, ever that's... written or recorded. Make sure you push that single and treat them like the bands that sound like the song that only sounds like that because we made them write it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Is this Christian rock? It sounds like it could be like a Creed no. clone. Like a secret no, Christian rock all. thing at all? No? Not not even a little. They are okay. actually pretty they're actually pretty intense alt rockers to be honest. They're really talented. He's actually a great vocalist and I don't think that shows at all on this song. Oh no, it does not. Uh, he has an he has a grating night in his voice. Well, they also slap like a phaser on his voice for the pre-chorus and it sounds really off-putting. You sound like a Dalek. Why are why are we trying to have Daleks record 90s music? So Oh man, I need that. I need a record of Daleks re-recording popular 90s songs. Hit me, baby, one more time. It would be the greatest Danger. thing ever. Get on the floor. Danger. Show me what you're working with. <laughs> 
So this song, this band is not as terrible as the song is made out to be. No, the band is actually great. Uh, they do a really terrific live show. They are uh, really. This is not indicative of what they sound like in the least. All right, I believe you. Um, bon Jovi every day. Oh wow. I make no bones about the fact that I feel no lost love between me and Bon Jovi. Yep. Uh, I grew up in a town where they kept – I mean, like, I, Chris will tell you. Yep. Every teacher in every school traded on his name. I taught Bon Jovi or, you know, almost like Santa. Kind of like your parents being like, if you're bad, I'm going to write a letter to Santa. <laughs> it's almost like your teachers are like, if you're bad, I'm going to write a letter to Mr. Jovi, and you're not going to be slippery when wet at all. If you disparage the town of Sayreville, New Jersey, uh, Richie Sambora will come and blow up your head by playing through his music vape. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Richie Sambora. It's just is... like scanners. He hits a he hits a note and it's a wah wah. And it's a scanners. Uh, oh my gosh! <laughs> everything about that is is my new favorite. Everything about anything. I I don't even think this is a good Bon Jovi song. As as we've said, this is a subpar Bon Jovi song at best. Uh, it's really just a bad Bon Jovi song, and we're being nice. I mean, there's probably people out there who are like, but there are good Bon Jovi songs, so a bad Bon Jovi song is still better than, no, this is probably the worst song on this now, by a good amount. And that includes Creed and Spider-Man Nickelback song. Ultimately forgettable for me. It's a car commercial song. I really get that. Emissions time. Let's have some fun. Nico, Nico, uh, can, can you work it? Can I work it? You know, but I think I'd have to put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the program, Missy Elliott. This song is like a greatest hits compilation in and of itself. Like, every verse has something unique and memorable. And when you start thinking about Missy Elliott parts, you remember all of those, even though you might not remember they're all from the same song. And this song is... I feel the same way about Lose Control, uh, by the way. Missy Elliott was so on fire around this time. Uh, I don't disagree. You know, she's, she's fearless and she's, she's high energy and she's willing to work with just about anybody as long as they're talented. You know, they don't have to necessarily sound like her sound for them to be somebody she wants to collaborate with. And this is a Timbaland beat. Yeah. And that gives her so many amazing collaborations you don't hear other places. I think it's really interesting and, you know, we all remember it and brave to have a chorus that is practically unsingable because of the reverse part. Not just the reverse, but implicit profanity? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This this song is, like, kind of ahead of its time, lyrically. At least for a mainstream song. Yeah, I mean, she's not kidding when she says, if you've got an elephant dick. <laughs> she, she's, she's, she's also the woman who did One Minute Man. She wanted you to break her off, show you what you got. She don't want no One Minute Man. Ooh! Even though she's got that great sense of humor that we mentioned uh in side A, she's also got a really intense streak to her music. Mm-hmm. She's not saying, if you're a good lay, let me know and I'll think about it. 
she's like, if you've got an elephant dick, fuck me. I think that's really important to remember inside A is that Eve kind of got, um, in some ways, mistreated for what she had to do to get famous. I am yeah. making no negative commentary on Missy Elliott. I am far from a sizest guy. I love me some bears. Woof. Um, but I don't know that Missy Elliott is necessarily in the weight class that we associate with um, the casting couch. Of course. A- at least at this point in, in her early enough in her career that she was getting music videos. I wonder. No one's going to argue that like image is so important in the music industry and often people will not get the same opportunities that someone with less talent and bigger boobs will. And I have to ask myself and wonder if putting her in an inflated trash bag was in part to cover her weight. Oh, I completely forgot about that video. I mean, I don't, I mean, now I remember every part of it, but yeah, that's right. I'm not, I wouldn't be shocked. That was one of her earlier hits, right? That was her first uh, big mainstream single. Um, yeah. And I can't see the rain, right? Yeah. And at that, uh, super duper fly. That's the period in time where you've got Lil Kim running around Mm -hmm. looking like a Barbie. And right. And and so Missy Elliott is not the first person to have lyrics like this. You can just go back to Lil Kim, but I'm talking like a mainstream thing. Missy didn't have her body to be sexualized to rely on. And I, I do not mean that in any disrespectful way to women who use their assets to get where they need to be. That's acknowledging that your assets give you access that not having those assets would make impossible. Missy Elliott, you know, she lost a tremendous amount of weight and looked great. And she's got a cute face, thick legs, thin waist, in shape, rump shaken both ways, make you do a double take. I think I'm close. If I'm not right, I'm close. Um, I bring it up because she, when she became fitter, um, was very comfortable sexualizing herself. And I wonder how much of that is because she was always comfortable. She, I think to be sexualized as a bigger woman, very frequently in our culture, you have to be the one to sexualize yourself first. And I think Missy did a really beautiful job with that. I, I don't know. I think her career should be studied as how to be. For like a thousand reasons, uh, creativity wise, like I said initially, willingness to work with tons of varied artists. Actually, one of some of, one of my favorite songs of all time is the Nelly Furtado remix of "Get Your Freak On." I love the Missy Elliott guest spot on "Do It," which is my favorite Nelly Furtado song of all time. Missy Elliott's amazing. I think not including "Work It" on a now is it goes in the "No Black People on My Radio" white American fear category. You know, people people can try and be like, okay, but Noriega is is track two. Yes, but I think what we need to also say is there can only be so much uh, subversion of white culture on any one of these. Yeah, I mean, we we only had Missy show up very briefly, and I believe it was through omissions. Like Lady Marmalade was not on the main album, and she doesn't even really get to do anything in that song. No, even Lil Kim gets to do more. Lil Kim yep. goes, oh. She has a whole verse, and Missy just goes, Christina, Maya, Lil' Kim. That's it. Like, that's all she does. And she also, I think she says, um, Moulin Rouge. Probably. She also produced it and put it all together. So, there's that. There is probably at least some aspect of business that we 
don't have the context or the knowledge of. We're like, oh, this label wasn't going to give us anything this month. We had to include this label. Yeah, no, like you're absolutely correct. There is an element of the demographicization of culture. I think it's really easy to say, okay, well, these two white guys are saying everything's because of racism. It's still sort of a problem that huge parts of this country are afraid of social progress. Absolutely. Noriega is quite a score in terms of credibility. Aaliyah, good move for credibility. Beanie Man, good move for credibility. But it's hard when you see Work It Not On Here. I I don't know about you, but I kind of remember Missy having kind of nonstop hit after hit every time she released anything. Yep. And it's hard to explain how twice we've talked about Missy Elliott and it's twice been because you pointed out she was left out. Yep. So after this recording, you want to go, like, play the knockout game and scare some white people? Yeah. Cool. We'll do it while we're listening to The Strokes last night. Um, I asked D this on the last episode, and we talked about it a little bit, but I'm sure we can go a little bit more in depth here. Do you remember the whole, like... Uh, every shitty rock magazine. Yeah, and NME and Kerrang! and Rolling Stone all had a cover like, The Blank Saves Rock and Roll. And it was The Strokes, The Hives, and The Vines. Yes, that was the, the trinity of uh, kind of garage rock that I remember all coming out around the same time. I think The Strokes are the best of those by far. I always have the same memory of of these three bands. I feel like it was like on the MTV Music Awards, they had two or three of them perform on the stage together. It might have been the sh- the Hives and the Vines even and not the Strokes. But I always remember that one guy from the Hives going, you love the Hives, at the end of their performance, like a German supervillain trying to convince the damsel that he's kidnapped and tied to the chair and has waterboarded why she should be his princess. Yes, you will love Garage Rock, or you will die, milady. <laughs> right, exactly. No, you will not love the Strokes. I, I, I find it really hard to take a diehard villain seriously. I think it's something that time has permitted, which is the ability to become famous on creating music that was only sort of famous originally, and time has honored it better. Uh, stay tuned for episode 15 when we talk about Jet, the worst criminal in that category. I got a question for you about rock music on the radio. So there's always been this period, and I think the whole, I think that whole saves rock and roll thing came from radio playing less rock and more rock stations closing down at that time. And so there was always this fight to get rock on the radio. Do you think that we're not going to get the blank saves rock and roll covers and think pieces anymore? Because the internet has kind of made it that no one cares if rock gets on the radio because you're you don't have that limitation anymore. You're going to find the bands you like. Well, it's really funny that you used that that specific soundbite because I actually think that soundbite is so overused. Um, Fallout Boy just named their most recent album Fallout Boy Saves Rock and Roll, and that phrase should now be sent out to fucking sea and sunk. I think the culture has changed in a lot of ways. Uh, it's It's cool to have a favorite band. It's always cool to have a favorite band. It's cool to have um, a band you think is like, okay, like, I think Elton John is one of the best songwriters of all time, even if I don't like obsessively think like Elton John's the greatest. I always listen to Elton John. He's my favorite. 
I think he's one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Yeah, right yeah. there with you. He's one of the greatest songwriters of all time, but he's not my nec- he's not necessarily my go-to. And Goodbye Yellow Brick Road is one of the best composed albums ever. ever, and I've listened to it straight through like three or four times. I don't even think it's because of the internet, though. I think we're going to keep getting that terminology until it's completely uncool, and I think we're getting toward completely uncool because I think one of the issues with saves anything is that implies it's broken, right? I think we're getting past the place where it's okay to say something has to save rock and roll because I think we're getting to the place where it's insulting and unfair to what currently exists to do so. I I think it's almost damaging because it it casts this really negative light on things. It hurts the genre almost to say, oh, they're here to save rock and roll. Well, now every cover you've had, Rolling Stone, for the last six months is kind of insulting. Every cover you've had with any rock star on it, you're saying ultimately – wasn't good enough. And that's something you need to look out for. To finish up, we've got System of a Down with Chop Suey. Wake up! Wake up! Run, rush, and put a little makeup! Have the sense to fade away the shake-up! Watch and leave the keys up on the table! Here you go, create another table! You wanted to! Run, rush, and put a little makeup! You wanted to! Have the sense to fade away the shake-up! You wanted to! Watch and leave the keys up on the table! You wanted to! A lot of people I know like this band, or at least the Toxicity album, and... I've never heard anyone really explain why, because I think this is kind of an example of what I said with Shakira, where it sounds inherently silly, but is taken very, very seriously. And I can't take these guys seriously. I can't take them seriously. I think their first album with like spiders, like that shit's intense and kind of freaky. The song BYOB is one of the funniest songs I've ever heard in my life. And it is a deathly serious attempt at a political song. And the little one, the the little one with the high voice, the 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 little one who does the the one who looks like he should give you a quest in Fallout. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. The I don't know his name. The Hobbit. Yeah. He. Um. He. He. He's hard to take seriously because I sometimes think he's a um a Chris Kattan character. <laughs> and you know, in this song in particular, as much as I love the conventions of metal music, I've never gotten behind like the lyrics especially not as an adult i actually don't think i cry when angels deserve to die is that poetic i think ariel's is a pretty good song i think toxicity is really dumb why how did these guys get on the radio is and this is not a quality question this is kind of what we're saying with missy elliott is like the mainstream has a style was this another case kind of what i was suggesting with the strokes just like yeah there was a fight to get rock on the radio because it had to go somewhere or you would never know about it i think it had i sometimes i think about rupaul and i wonder how she got a supermodel on the radio in the first place Mm. how did that happen right Mm -hmm. um but i think it's super cool that it did and then you know we talked about how with incubus they're just such talented musicians it's super cool that it happened with this, I'm just confused. I even like it, but some of their stuff sounds like warehouse party music, like at Halloween time. Like, I think if you kind of added screaming, Werewolf Bar Mitzvah could be by <laughs> System of a Down. Spooky, scary, Werewolf Bar Mitzvah! Like, I mean, it, it actually kind of works and I'm upset. Yeah. I think they are ridiculous. I yeah. even like the music. Exactly. I don't feel the way about these guys that I do about Nickelback. I just don't get it, really. I would love for someone to write into the mailbag and talk about what we're missing with System of a Down here. But, like, 
most of it is really what I'm saying. It's like, it's baffling to me that this shared radio time with Coldplay and Beyonce. I think there was an art to being the funny, the funny metal band for a while. I think Insane Clown Posse have made $80 million and inspired an entire genre of clown rap rock. And like, cause there's like the Cottonmouth Kings and I'm sure there's like the Harlequin Boys. <laughs> and I'm sure there's like Mudvayne. Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> right. Then there's that fucking weird juggalo that offers to mow your lawn, and he also has an album, too. If someone told me that the entire time that that System of a Down was doing this, there was some guy backstage going, okay, you see those kids taking it seriously in the front row? Bug your eyes out at them. I bet they eat it up. (laughs) Yeah. Again, kind of an element of professional wrestling working the crowd. Yeah, that. I just kind of think that. I think, what what if System of a Down was in on the joke? Yeah, and they definitely weren't, because they had that album, the next album was like, steal this album, we don't want to become mainstream, capitalist, bleh, it's like, yeah, but you are now? If you've sold a million copies, you're mainstream, and you kind of need to be okay with that, period. Like, you know, it's like Chumbawamba, when Chumbawamba was like, no, we don't want to be signed! They're still cashing those, I get knocked down, but I get up again checks. I don't think they get knocked down anymore. I think they just get back up <laughs> again. And when they give you their keys to their car to have it valeted, they expect to get it back with the seat in the same position. Uh, well, let's sashay away from this uh, version of now and do recommendations. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to change shit up. I'm going to do a movie, actually. That's what I'm doing as well. Uh, Lilo and Stitch. Came out in 2002. Okay. And Lilo and Stitch saved Disney after a really, really hard time. There's a really phenomenal book, Disney War, you should check it out. Um, Disney had had a, a string of really hard years, and now we look back on those as classics. Robin Hood and, you know, uh, Sword in the Stone and some of the, the, the movies after Walt that just maybe didn't resonate with audiences quite the same classic way. Uh, they were still popular, but let's face it, they weren't the princess movies anymore. And um, right. Michael Eisner, for every bad thing you can say about him, was a genius who turned the company around at lightning speed and uh, turned it into the empire you know it is today. So the Disney Renaissance is Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King. A lot of people say that Pocahontas is the turning point. Then it's... Um, Hunchback, I think it might be Mulan, then Hercules, then it's a whole bunch of garbage for a little while. I think Tarzan's in there, and but nothing really resonated the way those first few I said, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and Lion King. Nothing was really that level of people couldn't, people couldn't look away. Lilo and Stitch came out, and it generated such positive response. Lilo and Stitch was this beautiful, bright spot in this, in this dearth of of light it really did something for the the company again and did something really incredible for the theme parks too it it, it helped revitalize parks after 9-11 in a way uh while his attraction is unarguably one of the worst attractions disney's ever built uh it, it they even celebrated the cultural impact of stitch was even celebrated with stitch day where stitch appeared on the castle forecourt stage and tp'd the castle you know, when a company like Disney says, shut the fucking park down for a day and celebrate this one character like he's Mickey Big. Stitch is the Disney equivalent of Deadpool in the wake of the Deadpool. Stitch hmm. is responsible for a lot of what Frozen was able to do. And because when you think about it, that was 15 years ago. And 
those people yeah. were 14 and they saw this kind of silly movie, but it was cute and they saw it on a date. Another 29, another showing it to their three-year-old, another three-year-old wants to go to Disney. And it actually fulfills what Disney's always looking for, which is a reason to have brand loyalty to their type of entertainment, whether it's home media, uh, live on Broadway, travel destinations, etc. And I think whether you are an emotional person like me and you cry when Stitch says, I'm lost, um, or you're someone else like me who just appreciates understanding the two whys, wheres, fors, and hows of, of, of corporate infrastructure and how it influences our daily life in ways we'll never even realize. Lilo and Stitch is a massive, big, bright, can't be missed 2002 moment for both fronts. You're not the first person to bring up Lilo and Stitch recently and say it was really good. Uh, I can't remember who the other person was, but I'm not positive. But yeah, that movie has come up recently, um, possibly because it's a 15-year thing as something uh, worth watching. I've never actually seen it, so maybe it's about um, time. There's, it's actually got an enormous canon. I don't necessarily know that I recommend the enormous canon. I Yeah, I don't tend to watch Disney sequels. I wouldn't make a habit of it. Uh, I'm going to stick with movies. I'm going to recommend the film 24-Hour Party People. Uh, it's by Michael Winterbottom. It's got Steve Coogan, Patty Considine. It's very, very, very British. Um, even Andy Serkis, I think, shows up for a minute in there. It's about that like really famous Manchester concert uh, where the Sex Pistols perform. And Sex Pistols kind of suck, and I think even this movie kind of acknowledges that. Um, but Tony Wilson sees that show and kind of starts the late 70s into the 80s and early 90s Manchester music scene, which includes uh, Ian Curtis and Joy Division and later New Order. And I think that's a really important time in music that not enough Americans know about. Like, more people should know the name Ian Curtis. So 24-Hour Party People, great, fun movie. And uh, educational, if you're going to listen to this podcast, bitch. I think it's really cool that in all the ways that we compliment each other on some of these things, and I think our recommendations really highlighted that, that we both went with movies, and I went with a kid's movie that proves that everything you love has been programmed by a corporation. And you went with a movie <laughs> about the evolution of culture in the wake of, of what we're talking about, music. It, it's just a really cool interplay of why our, 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 our views on this stuff always sound really fun together. And that's why you're here for a good time and a long time now. Hey, what's up? Uh, Nico, where can people find you? Sure, you can find me on Facebook.com slash Action Duo, which is my super cool uh, music with my buddy Adam. Super great stuff. Check it out. You can also find us on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, etc. as Action Duo. Get them those 10% of a penny. Oh, yeah. Seriously, guys. Get me that. I think it's actually like one one hundredth of a penny. Seriously, even I think better. it's yeah, it's it's vulgar. Uh, and you you're getting the thing that's used in Office Space that they round off as as the plot of that movie as a payment. <laughs> yes, I love that movie. Um, I love that movie so much. So, uh, and then you should also check out my comic at kidriotcomics.com. Uh, super fun comic about a dude who gets uh, his idols out of retirement and they form a super team and they become superheroes. You definitely want to check it out. It's fun. You'll be back for Volume 12 next month. Excited? It's been so hard backseat podcasting this whole time because, like, I yell at my headphones and shit, and it's, 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 it's never that I'm like, other people aren't good. It's that I, I love sharing this stuff with you guys. Now we're able to see the signs that we missed. The